<laughs> okay. Good morning, everybody. <laughs> okay, so do the visualization, tenth prayer, set our motivation, and have the talk. So to create our motivation, we'll start out contemplating our relationship with our body. So we say, my body, like the body is a possession. So what makes this body yours? Ask yourself that question. What makes this body mine? And investigate that. And who is the I that possesses this body? We say this body is mine. So who is the one that owns this body? And what is the relationship between the owner, I, and the owned, the body? think that the majority of sentient beings, except for those in the formless realms, have bodies and are equally attached to their bodies. But the body brings suffering And yet we 
feel it as part of our identity. Why is that? Why do we hold something that is that brings us pain and pleasure sometimes as part of our identity? So wouldn't it be nice if we and all other beings had a body made of light and a mind that was not attached to that body made of light? What would that be like? So that kind of body would be an enjoyment, uh, an emanation body of a Buddha that manifests simply for the benefit of others. And so with the wish, wanting ourselves and others to become Buddhas, generate the bodhicitta.
Interesting, isn't it? So we're at the part of uh, the chapter on guiding, uh, guarding alertness, where Shandi Dever starts to talk to us about our body and our relationship with our body. So we have so many assumptions about this body and so much attachment and grasping to it that it's uh, that that all seems very normal. And it's hard for us, you know, I mean, when we really ask, what's my relationship with this body and what is this body? Um, yeah, you feel that there's a, a an I that owns this body, that depends on this body for happiness and pain. Yeah. And yet feels that this body is part of who I am. Hmm? Then when we create our identity in the world, so much of that depends on our body, doesn't it? Yeah, your gender, the color of your skin, how tall you are, your weight, yeah, your physical agility. And yet, it's just a bunch of vegetable goo. That's all. But we're so attached to it. Aren't we? Yeah? It's our most treasured possession. And yet, when we die, it completely abandons us. And there's no way to hold on to it. So let's start with the verse 60, where Shantideva says, Holding this body is mine. Why mind do you guard it so? This is why it's interesting. What? I say this body is mine. What does that mean? What makes it mine? And who is the person who owns it? Sometimes we feel like our body is I, not mine. I am cold. I am in pain. There the body seems to be who we are. Other times we say, my body is cold. My body is pain. As if the I and the body were separate. One possesses the other. Okay, so here Shantideva is looking at it as mine, and he says, since you and it are separate, what use can it be to you? Okay, so if if our our use, if our purpose, if our aspiration is to become a Buddha to benefit sentient beings, 
how is this body useful for that purpose? Yeah, especially since this body is so picky. Is your body picky? Yeah, it likes this food. It doesn't like that food. It likes lunch at a certain temperature. If it's too cold, we gotta heat it up. If it doesn't have enough flavor, we gotta put something else on it. Yeah. If the room is too cold or too hot, we gotta do something. Yeah. If our stomach aches, then we're totally incapacitated. Yeah, cannot do anything, just lie on our bed as if we're dying, you know, because our stomach hurts a little bit. Or maybe it's only our little toe that hurts, but anything that hurts, and we are, you know, we're flat out. Screaming with pain. Anything that feels good to the body, oh boy, we want more. But when we say, well, you know, my aspiration in life is a spiritual one to attain Buddhahood, to be able to benefit others, then why am in the world Am I so wrapped up about what is happening with this body? And why can't I, I can't endure any discomfort? Yesterday was precept day. Did you get hungry? Will you get hungry in the morning? Will you get hungry in the evening? Yeah, then you eat a big lunch. Then you don't feel well because you ate too much. But anyway, you're still hungry by the evening. Yeah. Incredible, this body. Hmm? So what use can it be to you? Then we ask ourselves, why confused mind? Do you not hold on to a clean wooden form? Just what is the point of guarding this putrid, dirt-filled machine? Okay, so a clean wooden form. You know, like, like Kuan Yin in the back, the statue of Kuan Yin. Yeah? It's beautiful. Why don't we hold on to something that's clean like that, that's beautiful. Why don't we say I to a wooden form? Well, because it wouldn't give us pleasure, would it? And we want pleasure from our body. Okay, then just what is the point of guarding then the body I have, which is a putrid, dirt-filled machine. 
Okay. You're out in the woods working with the chipper, yeah? Chipper makes a lot of noise, doesn't it? <laughs> you know, and it spews these dirt, these, these chips all over the place. Okay. But the chipper isn't a putrid, dirt-filled machine. It's just a machine. Yeah. Our body, yeah, Remember how in in school they tell us our body is like a machine? We invented the machine, but we think, we then say we're like the machine. Not the machine is like us, but we're, we're like the machine, which I find very humorous. Okay. But what, but the body is a sack of putrid, dirt-filled junk, isn't it? Okay. I mean, what would happen, yeah, just, just visualize, we all come to class without our skin on. Yeah, there's the bones and the muscles, and in here you can see the intestine, you can see the spleen and the pancreas and your stomach and your livers and your kidneys are hiding back in the back. And we all come to class, and we sit here without our skin. Okay. How does that look? Do you want to sit here in in a room with a lot of people without the skin? And with the smell of what the inside of the body is. Yeah, because our skin isn't holding it all in. So all the smell just kind of naturally floats and, you know, puts fragrance in the air. You want to sit in a a room like that? Yeah, what would it be like to look at everybody here and without their skin? Yeah. Yeah. So it is a putrid, dirt-filled machine, isn't it? Yeah? You're sitting here. Nobody has skin on. You look, you can see their intestines. Yeah? You can see the intestines move as all the food goes through them. Beautiful, isn't it? Yeah. And the muscles. Yeah, that's the same part of animals we eat, people who like to eat meat. It's like eating your own muscles. Yeah, you want to go? (laughs) That would be pretty gross, wouldn't it? So what is the point of guarding this putrid, dirt-filled machine? And why in the world do we evaluate other people based on the sack of putrid, dirt-filled junk just based on its 
the outside shape and color. When we're all sitting here in putrid, dirt-filled sack of smelly stuff, But your putrid bag fills smelly stuff is nicer and more attractive than that person's. And your putrid filled uh, bag of smelly, dirty junk, you know, has higher social status than that person's. And you can do certain jobs because of the shape of your putrid, you know, junk bag. You get the privilege of doing certain jobs, and other people have to do other jobs because of what their putrid, junk-filled bag looks like when it's covered with skin. Yeah. But skin, have you ever, you know, worked with, uh, with I mean, I'm sure some of you, uh, cooking chicken, and you have the chicken skin before it's cooked, before you roll it and make it into Kentucky Fried, you know, stuff. When it's just skin, chicken skin. You remember what chicken skin looked like? And what it felt like in your fingers. And that's what covers this thing. So we have a putrid bag of junk covered by gooey skin. When When your gooey chicken skin has fewer folds... People think you're beautiful. When your, your chicken skin has a lot of wrinkles, people say you're ugly. And again, your social status will depend on that. Hmm? And then... Even if you decorate your chicken skin, yeah. So maybe the chicken skin still has feathers on it. So if you look like a peacock, you get paid more money than if you look like an ordinary chicken. Yeah. Even though the chicken lays the eggs that human beings can eat, I don't know if you can eat peacock eggs. I've never heard of that. But the peacock, you can. But the peacock still gets paid more money. Yeah. Because it once had feathers, even though now it just has a few feathers left. But when we lack our feathers, then we put rocks on top of them. That's what diamonds and rubies and lapis lazuli are. 
they're rocks. So we decorate our chicken skin with rocks and with these things, these round things that you find inside oysters. <laughs> you op- I mean, have you ever opened an oyster? Pretty gross. And then you take something, you know, this grain of sand thing out of the oyster, and you wash it off because it's gooey. And then you hang it on your chicken skin. And that makes you look beautiful. Okay. Tanti Deva asks asks us some pretty good questions, doesn't he? But part of our mind is going, yeah, 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 you're just saying that. Our bodies are better than chickens. We're not like that. Prove it. Yeah. Well, our bodies are bigger and stronger than chickens or turkeys. Yeah. And we have more poop that comes out. Yeah. Turkeys only make a little bit less to step on. Human beings, yeah, if you've ever lived in parts of this world where people just use the sidewalk as their toilet and you walk and you better watch where you're walking. Sixty-two. First of all, mentally separate the layers of skin from the flesh. Okay, so... Mentally peel off your chicken skin, all your moles, all your freckles, all your little things. I went to the dermatologist, they called it barnacles. (laughs) All the little barnacles, you know, here, there, and, you know, you, you peel all of that off. And then with the scalpel of your discriminating mind, separate the flesh from the skeletal frame. So first you peel off the skin. And when you peel it off, it's all kind of loose and shapeless. Yeah, like the chicken skin, when you peel it off the, the muscle of the chicken. You put the skin over there. Okay, you can put it through a few eyeballs and ears on top of it. And then with the scalpel of your discrimination, yeah, you take the flesh off the skeletal frame. Okay, so you peel not only the muscle away, but also the inner tissue, the organs. You know, your esophagus. You pull that out, yeah. Your brain, that kind of gray, stinky thing. Yeah. You pull all that stuff out. You, you put it over here. You can even categorize it if you want so that you know how to put it back together again. 
So this is a muscle that goes on the foot, and this muscle goes on the arm. And, you know, here's the liver, and here's the spleen. Uh, Don't get them mixed up, because if you hook them up back the wrong way, you're in big trouble. Okay. Yeah. So your your liver, just like chicken liver. Remember you used to eat chicken liver as a kid? Yeah. So there it is. Yeah. And all the rest. And that intestine. My goodness. So beautiful, that intestine. Okay. So separate the flesh from the skeletal frame. And having split open even the bones, so then you take the bones and break them open. Okay. Look right down into the marrow inside those bones. What color is the marrow? Pinkish white. So look at the marrow. And while examining this, ask yourself, where is its essence? So what is the essence of your body? What is this body? Yeah. Take, take maybe the bone in your big toe and open it up and look at the marrow. What is the essence of this body? If, even when searching with such effort, so you do this very slowly and you really look. So even when searching with such effort, you can apprehend no essence. Yeah, there's this pinkish, whitish goo. What's the texture of the marrow? Thin clayish. Yeah. Yeah. So there it is, your marrow. You're holding it in your hand. The essence of your bones. Yeah? So what? Is that something to hang on to? What is mine about that morrow? Or what is mine about that pile of bones? Once I disassembled the bones, or with all the tissue, or the chicken skin over here. Yeah. So if even when searching with such effort you can apprehend no essence, then why with so much attachment are you still guarding this body now? When we really look at what the body is, Why are we so attached to it? And why do we fuss over it so much?
Yeah. Why do we fuss? We look in the mirror. Now, if I had Botox, there wouldn't be those wrinkles there. What would I look like? You know, if I had a facelift, they pulled all the skin back, and they got rid of the bags under my eyes. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, I would look young and attractive again. Wouldn't that be nice? And the tooth, you know, where I have a space, it sticks something in there, so it looked like it still had all my teeth. And they were all white, not going yellow like they do with age. And your gums aren't receding. So you have this beautiful smile. Yeah. Your eyes are like diamonds. Your teeth are like pearls. So there's something I can be attached to. This is mine, so I get social status from it. Yeah. They look, people look at it and judge me according to how I look, how my diamonds and pearls look. And I judge myself. And I'm not as good as other people. Their diamonds and pearls are more attractive than mine. My diamonds are getting cataracts. (laughs) My pearls have fillings in them. But they're still mine. Mine, I want to hold on to this, the source of my happiness. But my back hurts. <laughs> and the scar from my hip surgery shows. If I put on a bikini, that scar is going to show. Ooh. That's terrible. We better do something to cover that up. Yeah. But even I cover up the scar that there's all sorts of other things on my legs, too, that aren't, you know? You know, they come with age, you know, those things. Yeah. The things that when you look at your arms, they look like your grandmother's. And when you look at your friends, you're really glad that your friend's skin looks like their grandmother's too, because then you're not alone. (laughs) But before you get to that point, when you're still pre-Botox and pre-facelift, yeah, and you have all your teeth and really good mouthwash, because you can't have bad breath, and really good deodorant, because you can't smell. Then you feel like you will never, ever, ever get old and sick and smelly. Because your body right now 
you know, they have all these products that can do away with the smell. And you are young, and your chicken skin is still smooth. And there aren't barnacles on it yet. But they're coming, just you wait. (laughs) Don't be too smug. Because the rest of us thought like that at one time, too, and look at us now. Oh, this body hurts. Oh, it's too cold. It's too hot. I'm hungry. I'm thirsty. I talk too much and my throat gets sore. And then I got to sit cross-legged. Just wait till you have your hip surgery. Then you have a, a reason not to sit cross-legged. Yeah. But then the chair is also uncomfortable. <laughs> and then when you prostrate, yeah, you're waiting for the forklift <laughs> to get you up off the ground a lot. And you're praying every time you go down, is this first prostration, second prostration? Oh, okay, it's the second one. Only one more. Can I make it up? Ooh. Or the times when you can't make it up, right? And you're on the floor. My mom and dad stayed in their house. They didn't want to go to assisted living or anything. And one time, you know, mom fell. She fell a lot. And then dad was trying to help her up, and he fell. And both of them were on the floor and couldn't get up. And they had to call 911. Yeah, can you imagine you call 911? Please, (laughs) please get me off the floor. Please pick me up off the floor. Yeah? So sometime in the middle of the night, when you're sound asleep, you young ones, somebody is going to pound on the ceiling or pound on the floor and say, get out, get me off the floor. And you're going to go, oh, I'm too tired, (laughs) and roll over. (laughs) Okay, so why, with so much attachment, are you still guarding this body now? Yeah, especially when it's getting older every single day and approaching death every single day. Tenzin Kacho's book, um, The Three Regrets, this is our friend who is uh, a hospice uh, chaplain, yeah, at a hospital in Los Angeles. And she wrote a book about 
talking about the people that she's worked with who are actively dying. Very interesting what goes on in people's minds. Yeah. She went to one couple's house. The man was ill. They had just bought new... uh, um, uh, what do you call? I mean, the padded chairs. What do you call them? Lazy boys, Lazy boys or recliners? Yeah. So they had bought his and her recliners. I think she said they were orange. I can't remember. Anyway, she would go over there, and uh, and the they had a lot of friends, and they loved parties. And so she would be over there, you know, trying to talk to them. And uh, and their friends would show up with beer and pretzels and, you know, put on the music and they would have a party because they wanted to go out having a party. So she visited them over a, a course of many months. And one time she went in and the son was sitting with his father with an odometer, what do you call it, that measures your uh, oxygen? Oh, uh, oh odometers are cars, aren't they? Um, with, with one of those things that, you know, you put on and you, you measure. Yeah. Yeah. And the sun's sitting there and say, Dad, come on, we got to get the number up. Come on, come on, Dad. You know, uh, and the dad's hooked up to oxygen. Meanwhile, in the room, the music is playing. They're passing out drinks. They're having a party. And Tenzin's saying, I've never seen somebody die at a party. Yeah. I don't know. It was unclear in the book whether he died in the party or whether the party ended and he died a day later. Or It sounded kind of like he was going to die then because his oxygen numbers were really low. Okay. But that's what we want to do with our body is we want to have a party. Don't we? Maybe not a, you know, some people like big parties. Some people want just a little party, you know. There's, there's uh, the skeleton couple, okay? These are two deities called the skeleton couple. Yeah? So the skeleton couple has their own party. There's a puja for them. We make offerings to them. So why are you still guarding this body now? What use is this body to you if its dirty insides are unfit for you to eat and its blood is not fit to drink and if its intestines are not fit to be sucked? Yeah, but you still want to be majority leader of the Senate. You still want to get elected to the House. 
So you take your intestines with you. Your dirty insides, unfit to eat, blood not fit to drink, and intestines not fit to be sucked. And there you are, you're at the top of the world, sitting in the government. with your beautiful intestines that nobody wants to see. But you decorate this thing. You decorate your putrid sack of junk. Yeah. So some people put on as much clothes as they can with a collar up to here and something that uh, makes it stay so you're choking and those people have more power okay pad your shoulders you choke your throat yeah you have a lot of power and then other people wear as little as possible yeah Wanting you to see their skin, but not what's underneath the skin. Yeah. You can see the skin, but don't you dare look at my intestines. Okay. And then they all dance around each other, and they fight with each other. And nobody thinks, none of them think they're going to die. We have power. Yeah. So the old ones, they die. And some of them were waiting for them to die. But we're the young ones. At second best, it is only fit to be guarded in order to feed the vultures and the jackals. What? You're saying the only reason I should guard and protect this this body is to feed the vultures and the jackals? This is my body. I am not sharing it with anybody, especially not vultures. We haven't seen as many turkey vultures. We don't see them like we did when we first moved here. We used to have lots of vultures in the sky. We don't see so many now. I don't want to share this with the vultures. This is mine. Or the, well, who needs jackals? We have coyotes. Yeah? The coyotes wouldn't mind. They could use some extra food. Truly, this body of a human being should only be employed in the practice of virtue. It's not good for anything else, unless you want to save it up for the jackals and the vultures. You could sell tickets to them. Yeah, first come, first serve. Yeah, who gets the first bite?
At second best, it is only fit to be guarded in order to feed the vultures and the jackals. Truly, this body of a human being should only be employed in the practice of virtue. There's no other purpose for it. And even you adorn it with all these beautiful rocks of different colors, the vultures and the jackals are going to spit those things out. And then all the other human beings are going to come running and saying, I want those rocks. They're worth lots of money. And the the vultures and the jackals are going to go, wait, I'll give you some more. Yeah, you can find it in my poo. Sorry, my scat. You've got to use the right word to refer to my poo. Don't you call my excrement poo. That is not respectful. I have scat. Human beings have poo. My scat is nicer. Okay, 67. Yet, should you instead guard it with attachment, then what will you be able to do when it is stolen by the unsympathetic Lord of Death and given to the dogs and the birds? So it's only fit to employ to create virtue, yeah, to use as just a vehicle for when we want to work with our mind. Yeah, difficult to practice generosity if you don't have a body to hand somebody something, okay? Difficult to do your 100,000 prostrations without a body. So we should put it to your work for something useful to create virtue. But if we don't do that, and instead we guard it with attachment, then what are we going to do when it is forcefully stolen from us? When the Lord of death shows up, you know, like on the on the cover of volume three, the Lord of Death who's holding the wheel of light, life. Yeah, when he shows up with his fangs and his claws and his bulging eyes, and he says, This is mine now. Okay. Oh, what are you gonna do? You know, say, I'm sorry, you came too early. I'll make an appointment for you later. I'm not ready to die now. Yeah, go uh, find somebody else. My body is mine. You can't have it, Lord of Death. Uh, is that is that going to work? Is that going to work? So, Lord of Death, unsympathetic, is going to steal it. And then he's going to put it all around. And the robins may have a little bed. Do you think they'll eat the meat from our body? You know? And the wrens, 
Yeah, you hear some wrens now? They're going to have a few nibbles. And the chickadees and our ravens. Oh, they will love it. And maybe then we'll get the turkey vultures back. And maybe some uh, eagles. Yeah. Then everybody will come and take pictures of the eagles, but they won't take pictures of my beautiful body that the eagles are eating. Yeah. We're upstaged by the eagles. Now put the eagles on the on the medallions, you know, for the country. They're our national bird, aren't they? But they won't put me on a, a, a medallion. But the eagle's going to stay alive because it, it it eats this thing. So shouldn't I get some credit on the medallion too? If servants are not given clothing and so forth when they are unable to be employed, then why do you exhaust yourself looking after the flesh alone when even though caring for the body, it goes elsewhere? Okay, so if you employ somebody, you don't pay them unless they work. Okay, and if somebody is unable to be employed, you don't pay them anything. Okay, but this body, which could be used for virtue if we so chose and exerted it, uh, and we care for it so much, um, you know, why do we look at it after it and get so exhausted taking care of it when the birds and the coyotes are just going to go and eat it? And then the Lord of Death is going to snatch it up. Okay. But we fret over this body, don't we? We fret over it. We worry over it. Oh, this hurts. Oh, no, I'm going to be crippled. Yeah. Have you ever had, what do they call it, trigger finger? Where you, um, yeah, where you, you move your fingers and you've strained some muscles, but what happens is you, it, you have to click your finger clicks, and you have to push it to, to make it move, and it makes this sound kind of like a, I guess, like people push, pulling a trigger. You know, you get this click, and it hurts. And your first thought when you get it, when you don't know what trigger finger is, is, oh, no, I'm going to be, uh, uh, I'm going to be handicapped. I'm not going to be able to move my fingers anymore. Yeah. So then you go, I better exercise them so that they don't get out of shape. And then you go like this and this and this. And then after a couple of weeks of this and it's still clicking and making noise, you learn that you don't do that to cure 
trigger finger. It only makes it worse. Instead, you don't move it, or you move it as little as possible. Yeah. But when you got this thing, it didn't come with instruction manual, instruction manual on what to do when it breaks. So, you know, when you get trigger finger, where's the instruction manual that's supposed to tell you what to do or not do when you get it? So we often do the wrong thing. Okay, so why do we exhaust ourselves looking after the flesh alone when even though it's going to die, yeah, it's going to die, and then people will take it and they'll put it inside a box. They'll make a really fancy box. These people who, you know, they were, yeah, they, they liked you while you were alive and they were nice. But when you die... Yeah, they, they would forget your birthday when, when you were alive. But when you die, they buy you this beautiful box. The most beautiful box. Yeah, finally with a bed that's comfortable, that has satin lining and foam comfort, and it's exactly the shape of your body. And it, it's, it's of this beautiful wood, with, you know, golden or silver handles that are designed really nicely. Yeah, and it's so beautiful. Unless you die during a pandemic and, you know, um, Macy's has run, run out of the boxes, you know, then they just find some other thing and stick you in a, in a refrigerated truck for a while. But... Yeah, outside of that, you know, they'll put you in a really nice box and then bury you and then make a memorial for you with your name. So you no longer have to have name cards. Anyway, name cards are just pieces of paper like this. Now you get something big. And they can read your name on it from a distance. And it's carved in marble in something beautiful. Yeah. And then people come and place flowers there. If you're really lucky, they'll put plastic flowers that don't wilt. So then it looks like they love you all year round because you always have flowers even in the snow. But other people like to give fresh flowers, even though it costs more and it's bad for the environment. But then they wilt, and not everybody who comes to the place knows how much you were loved. But if they don't get you a beautiful box, yeah, with your own name card carved in stone, then, yeah, they might... Uh, uh, you know, cook you for a while, but on a high temperature, such that your body just becomes ashes. But then they'll put the ashes in a beautiful jar. Yeah. And then they take the jar to a temple and put the jar with a picture of you 
when you were young and beautiful before the Botox, before the arthritis, before the, you know, the cancer and the kidney disease. They put a picture of you smiling, beautiful, on the front of the jar. And the jar is really lovely. And they put flowers in front of that too. And they'll come every so often and light incense in front of your jar and your picture. And they'll go like this. Yeah? And again, you have a name tag. Yeah? A beautiful carved, inscribed with very lovely letters. And maybe you get a bigger jar than other people. Or they put your jar up on the top shelves. And before you die, you're very concerned about you know, are they going to put you in a box or, or, or cook you? You know, what are they going to do? So you plan ahead. You arrange it. Yeah. Make sure everybody knows. I want to be cooked. No, I want to lie for eternity in a beautiful box next to my friends. When my mom died, and at the funeral, one of her friends came, and my parents had purchased their uh, plots beforehand, and their friend had purchased her plot too. And Ida was going, I'm so glad I'm near Adele. We'll be able to talk later on. It's like, good luck, Ida, <laughs> you know? I don't think mom's going to be in the mood to talk by the time you're here. Um, okay. So you ask yourself these questions. Then, now, having paid my body its wages, I shall engage in making my life meaningful. So you eat, you drink, you wash this thing, you know. Nobody likes to do the laundry around here, but they love taking a shower. What's the difference? Your body and your laundry smell the same. You know? Having paid my body its wages, feed it, clean it, yeah. Try and get enough pillows so that it's comfortable. Cart my mattress around from one room to the next room. Yeah. Thank goodness I'm here to stay. Otherwise, when I leave, I'm going to have to put my mattress on an airplane. They'll charge me overweight for that but I want to take my mattress with me and my blankies. Yeah, I've got to guess my, get, have my blankies. And you know, this is the same one I've had since I was three months old. 
Yeah. Do you have a blankie? No, you had a stuffed elephant that you hugged. Yeah. Who had blankies? Yeah. Who had stuffed animals? <laughs> so what did you hug? A plastic tiny apple seed. Plastic. They gave you plastic. You should have sued them. <laughs> you didn't. You didn't. But plastic. You hugged. Oh, oh, it was. It was flavored plastic. Okay. <laughs> Each for their own. Yeah, talk to Opeka. He may loan you his his pink octopus. Yeah. Now, having paid my body its wages, I shall engage it in making my life meaningful through Dharma practice. However, if my body is of no benefit, then I shall not give it anything. So if all this body does is complain, you want me to get out of bed? It's too early. I've slept only 10 hours. Why are you making me get up? Yeah. You want me to do prostrations to the 35 Buddhas early in the morning? Oh... Oh, Namo Manjushriya. Oh, Namo Manjushriya. Namo. Tamashriya so. Yeah. So, if your body is rebellious <laughs> and your mind is assisting it in being rebellious, because you know the body, this is the trick, the body manipulates the mind. Yeah. When the body is unhappy, it says, mind, I, you feel pain. You better get anxious and worried. You better create an identity about what's happening to me. Yeah? All the gooey stuff in my intestines is not working properly. And my kidneys are malfunctioning. Mind, you better, you know, get alarmed at this. Make it your identity. Make sure everybody knows how much you are suffering. Because I'm suffering. So, mind is a co-conspirator. Yeah, don't just pick on the body. 
Yeah, mind cooperates with this. So when it says, however, if my body is no benefit, then I shall not give it anything, just like you don't pay an employee who doesn't work. Yeah. It doesn't mean torture your body and take it out on your body and cut off your limbs and, you know, uh, do horrible things to your body. It's, this is not what Shantideva is saying. Okay. But he's saying, change how you look at your body. Instead of thinking, this is me, and this is my most cherished possession, look at it with some distance, you know. Well, it's, it's a useful thing to create merit. But if all my body, reinforced by my mind, if the two of them like two little twin brats, all, if all they do is complain, yeah, then I got to sit down and have a talk with them. Hmm? I should keep, I should conceive of my body as a boat, a mere support for coming and going. And while you're coming and going, read chapter 2 of Nagarjuna. (laughs) It's all about coming and going. (laughs) And in order to benefit all others, transform it into a wish-fulfilling body. Huh? I should conceive my body, uh, conceive of my body as a boat. Okay, it's a vehicle. I use it to create merit. Yeah. A mere support for coming and going. Going to the meditation cushion, coming back. Going out to benefit others, coming back. And if I want to really use it to benefit all others, then I need to transform it into a wish-fulfilling body. Okay. So we start practicing transforming it into a wish-fulfilling body when we do the taking and giving meditation, when we do Tonglen, after we take on others' suffering and use it to demolish the lump of our own self-grasping ignorance and self-centered mind, then we imagine our body becomes a wish-fulfilling body and it can manifest as anything and go out into the world and be a benefit to others. And a wish-fulfilling body doesn't complain. Oh boy, I have some work to do to transform this thing into a wish-fulfilling body. Hmm. But if our aspiration is to be of great benefit to others, then we will start by imagining we transform it and then continue to practice the path until we are able to actually attain the uh, Sempo Kakaya and Nirmanakaya. 
and the uh, Dharmakaya. Okay, let's pause right here. So this is the conclusion of this whole section why he's really asking us to look at how we relate to our body, you know? And if we're sincere about our practice, how do we look at our body? How do we relate to our body in a healthy way, not tormenting it, not hating it, not getting into any of this craziness about, you know, comparing bodies and feeling bad about what your body looks like or, you know, afraid of it dying. Not any craziness, but just understand what the body is and then aspire to have a wish-fulfilling body that comes through transforming the mind because the body and the mind are in cahoots with each other. So if you, you know, transform your mind, then you can get a different kind of body. One that doesn't complain so much. And that doesn't make the mind complain so much. So let's pause here if you have questions or comments. As I thought about this question, I think you has had us think about it for the past week. I came to recognize that in my earlier years, a lot of my mental happiness came from the capacity of the body that I had. You know, all the physical enjoyments, the livelihoods that I did, the the satisfaction that I attained mentally came through my relationship to how strong, whatever. And now, of course, as time goes on, there's a strange expectation that it's still going to be able to deliver the same level of mental happiness that it had for 40 or 50 years or so. And the adjustment uh, that I have to make, my mind's relationship to it, because if I don't, there's a lot of disappointment. There's a lot of big disappointment. So um, I'm working on that. And so for to be able to see my body as a way in which I benefit others to have a different kind of mental happiness, not so much the happiness mm. of getting this eye satisfied, but to use the body until I can't anymore to be able to be of service. That's mm. been a slow change and it makes it feel, give it another job, you know, so, <laughs> and then it, it can do that. And it yeah. seems to be ma- making the transition a little bit less painful. Yeah. Yeah. But you're fortunate in that you weren't an an athlete or a model. Because for athletes and models, that transition comes much earlier in life. You know? And it's much more painful because they their identity is really strongly attached to the body. And when the star- body starts losing energy you know, and beauty, then it's like, well, who am I? Mm -hmm. What is my worth if my body is no longer beautiful and uh, able to be athletic? Yeah. If I can't throw a ball as far as I used to or as far as I want, Because throwing a ball was your whole life. Or running with a ball was your whole life. 
and you made a lot of money and got a lot of accolades and a lot of fame, yeah, because you didn't have many barnacles on your skin, or you were able to cover them up with all the other stuff that you put on. Yeah. And when you're old, another thing that happens when you're old, your eyelashes start falling out. Okay. So then, well, they start this before your eyelashes fall out. Every, you know, if you look at all the women in the, uh, on the television or on the news, they all have false eyelashes. Yeah. And some of them, I mean, they're, like they're so, <laughs> they're like out to here, you know? <laughs> oh, no, okay, I got to exert some effort to open my eyes. <laughs> they're really heavy. Yeah. But your whole self esteem rests on your ability to make your body look like it used to. Yeah. And to make your false eyelashes not look like they were false eyelashes, even though that's impossible. Yeah. Does it hurt when you take them off? It doesn't? I've never worn false eyelashes. To see what happens when you ordain when you're young? Yeah. (laughs) You've never worn false, (laughs) false eyelashes. It doesn't hurt. Okay, you glue the eyelashes in the wrong place. Okay. Okay, other questions, comments? Nothing online, huh? Oh, boy. (laughs) Did everybody sign off? (laughs) I started describing the body, and they all said, I'm out of here. I don't want to hear this teaching. (laughs) (laughs) okay yeah because we know it's true we know what Shandideva says is true yeah but it's hard to make ourselves really sit and meditate you know even with the first step of this where he asks us to peel away the skin you know Venerable Tharpa says they are comfy in their coffins oh (laughs) So then I, I want to stop here instead of going on to the, the next section, you know, so that between now and next week, you focus on this and spend some time. And uh, Shanti Deva comes back to it uh, in Chapter 8, too, with much more oomph. So this is uh, a way to get acclimatized. Yeah, it's amazing how we think this thing is so gorgeous and how we judge ourselves and other people based on it. And the time to decorate it and so on. I mean, now you see the the reason for for so many of our monastic precepts. It's to help us not be so attached to this thing. We can't decorate it. We can't perfume it. Yeah. We can't 
you know, do something to make ourselves look different. We can't even wave our long curly hair around. No, it's the long straight blonde hair. That's what you were supposed to have when I was in high school. You know, no long straight blonde hair. Anybody here have that? Ah, oh, your hair's light, yeah. Oh, that's, that's good enough. That's good enough. And long and straight, not short, curly, dark hair. Okay. So, you know, our, our precepts really help help us get over it, you know, a lot or some of the attachment to our body, you know, how we treat it, what we, you know, the the precepts that, you know, we can't go out shopping, we have to wear these kind of clothes, uh, you know, so on and so forth. It, it, they're designed to help us um, break the attachment to this body. Mm-hmm. But we find ways to wiggle around them. <laughs> yeah. Even when we have to go outside and work and put on work clothes, we want nice, attractive work clothes. Yeah. We don't want the work clothes that looks like hers and mine, <laughs> covered with tree sap. <laughs> Torn, smelly, even you wash them, I wash my work clothes, they still smell, you know. You want nice, attractive work clothes, nice color, yeah, fit your body well, show your body off a little bit, yeah, so that all those bugs think, oh, I'm getting squished by a nice, attractive body. (laughs) The precepts really help. Okay, dedicate. So think about this.